Good morning, church. My name is Stephanie, and I'll be reading our scripture passage for today. So you can go ahead and flip your Bibles all the way to the back. We're going to be out of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. If you don't have a Bible here with you, either you've forgotten one or you just don't own one, and if you're comfortable, you can raise your hand, and a Frontlines team member will be um, surely to bring, around, bring one around to you. And you can feel free to take this home with you if you don't own one or if somebody else wants one. Or if it's nicer than your own Bible, go ahead and take it. <laughs> so we're going to be starting chapter 21 and starting at verse 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steph. Well, are we ready? Are we ready? Yeah, mixed emotions, totally get it. Well, about nine years, four months ago, uh, we started a little thing called Church of the Ward. Now, of course, about 11 to 12 years ago, there was another thing started, it was called Forward Willow. And the two churches, Church of the Ward and Forward Willow, would eventually merge and form this church Church of the City. But the vision of both of those communities was very similar, and it was why we could eventually merge the two communities together. And there was this imagination, what would it look like for a group of believers to embody the kingdom of heaven in the everyday stuff of life? Not solely relegated to a Sunday morning experience, but 24-7, Monday through to Saturday. What would happen if the primary gathering place was not a church buildings, but our homes throughout the week, gathering around tables for meals, fellowship, communion, and for prayer? What if then Sundays became a celebration, a family reunion, as the smaller missional community families then multiplied? And what would it look like for a group of believers to take seriously a vision of the new heaven and the new earth and start living in light of those realities in the here and in the now. That was the vision, and that vision has stayed the same. Uh, many of you, if you've been around Guelph, uh, in the early days, this vision, when we first planted the church, uh, got us on the front page of the Guelph Mercury. I actually have a, a photo here, uh, and the, the headline of the article with 
my face plastered all over it was a church without walls. And um, we can now remove that. Thank you, Owen. <laughs> but I, I remember uh, we were contacted for this interview and, you know, I did the interview over the phone and they said, okay. And I said, listen, I don't want this thing hitting the press until I could actually read it. And they said, well, you know, that's not really license for the writer and all these sorts of things. I said, okay, but can I at least read it? And he said, okay. So he, he sent it to us. And I remember in the early days with a few people, we, we read it together and I said, and it was actually like very favorable. It's a very nice piece. Um, and then a few days later, an elderly couple that was supporting us financially uh, gave me a call and they said, oh, Matt, we, we saw you in the paper. And I said, oh, that's great. What page? Five or five to 12? Like what page are we on? She said, oh, the front page of the paper. I said, the front page. So of course, I went over and uh, picked up a few copies. Um, now, in order for us to understand and to have this prayer of Guelph is in heaven, we have to understand a bit of what heaven is, is like, where we're headed, what, what are we doing, what's the hope, what's the joy, what are we going to experience in this heaven? And so last week, we talked about the hope of heaven, which I think really laid a bit of the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but today's message is titled, The Joy of Heaven. Before I jump fully into it, why don't we take a moment to quiet ourselves, invite God by His Spirit to speak to us. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we we'll just invite you, even in this moment, challenge you. Just invite Jesus to speak to you. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be called your children. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to focus on heaven. It's joy and what we have to look forward to and what you also invite us to begin experiencing now. And so we thank you. I thank you again for this church community, what you've done, what you are doing, and what you're going to do. I pray a blessing over this community in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, last week I shared, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the hope of heaven. And maybe as you were listening to that message and then since that time, you've had some more opportunity to think a little bit more about what you've thought heaven is going to be like and what I shared last week about what the scripture teaches heaven will be like. And many of us, if we're honest, we come into the topic of heaven with many false assumptions, certainly influenced by, uh, if you remember the commercials, Philadelphia cream cheese and the angels sitting on the clouds enjoying cream cheese. And for many of us, if we're honest, we have sort of this vision of what heaven is going to be like. We're all just going to be sitting on the clouds, wings on our back, you know, enjoying life there. Uh, and that's really as far as some of our visions really go for heaven. Uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, which has been a, a really valuable resource for me as I've been preparing for these messages, has this table in his book, and I've recreated it for us the way that I did last week, similarly with another one of his tables, about some of the assumptions that we have about heaven versus what the Bible really does say about heaven. And we're going to dig into more of these things as we go. One of the assumptions we make about heaven is that it's going to be a non-earth Whereas the scripture teaches, as we heard read for us, and we'll dig in a little bit more, it's going to be a new earth. 
We assume that heaven is going to be unfamiliar or otherworldly, whereas the Bible teaches that it will be familiar and earthly. We assume that uh, we'll be leaving our favorite things behind, whereas the Scripture teaches that the new heavens and new earth will retain the good and we're going to find the best ahead. We have much to look forward to. We assume that heaven will have no time and space, whereas the scriptures teach that there will be time and space in the new heavens and new earth. We assume that heaven will simply be static, whereas the Bible teaches it will be dynamic. This is that Philadelphia cream cheese assumption. We're going to have nothing to do. We'll simply be floating on the clouds. Whereas the scripture teaches that there will be a God to worship and serve, a universe to rule, purposeful work to accomplish, and then friends to enjoy. We assume that there'll be no learning or discovery. We'll have instant and complete knowledge, whereas the scripture teaches that we'll have an eternity of learning and discovery yet to do. We assume that heaven will be boring, yet when the scriptures teach, it says, no, it's going to be fascinating. We assume that there'll be a loss of desire in heaven, where in reality, the scripture teaches that in the new heavens and new earth, there'll be a continuous fulfillment of desire. These are some of the joys of heaven. Now, to gain a little bit more clarity, let's go to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 6, the verses from the chapter that Steph read for us a little bit earlier. And what I simply want to lay before you today are four joys of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, a little bit of context for Revelation. Back uh, last year, we studied uh, Revelation. We talked about the seven churches. Revelation is a letter written by John to seven churches. His writing and genre of the letter is part of an ancient writing style known as apocalyptic literature, which is why the images, symbols, and overall language of the book can come to our minds and to our readings as being a tad confusing. That said, as we come to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 6, we are given a picture of what the second coming or the arrival of Jesus, what it will inaugurate, the change about the earth, and ultimately in part, we're given a picture of what heaven will be like. Praise God, we have this text. So verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now there's lots of debate about what passed away specifically means in regards to the first heaven and the first earth. Is this new heaven and earth fully newly created? Is the old world, old earth transformed and resurrected? Now, while my biblical study, my humble biblical study, would lead me to believe that there are aspects of both here, the point to emphasize is that the new heaven and earth will be purified and cleansed of all infection of evil, suffering, sin, and death. You notice in the second part of this verse, it says, and the sea was no more. In the ancient world, the sea was lingo for chaos, disorder, the unknown, In other words, the second coming of Jesus will usher in a world without chaos. Imagine. Well, what is the first joy that we have to look forward to? Absolute restoration, or another term, resurrection. Now, there's two aspects of resurrection I want to focus on. And the first one is this, resurrected 
bodies. Resurrected bodies. Where do we see this in the scriptures? 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a great picture of this. I'll first read verses 42 to 44, and then we'll jump ahead to verses 51 to 55. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Jumping ahead to verses 51 to 55. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of of the eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Once again, Alcorn in his book breaks down the earthly body from the resurrection body. In the earthly body, we read here that it's sown a perishable body. As I said last week, our bodies, they decay, they break down. But our resurrected body will be raised an imperishable body. They will not break down. They will not decay. Our earthly bodies are sown in dishonor as we are in sin, but we will be raised in glory. Our earthly bodies are sown in weakness, yet our our resurrected bodies will be raised in power. Our earthly bodies are so natural, but will be raised a spiritual body. What does all this mean? Well, imagine with me bodies that do not ache, bodies that do not break down, that are not impacted by the lack of sleep or at risk of infection and disease. Imagine absolute congruence between mind and body, all dysphoria that may exist, or shame that we feel related to our physical bodies is absolutely gone. We will feel at home, not only in the new heavens and the new earth, but also in our physical resurrected bodies. Theologians actually believe that the resurrected body likely follows elements of what Jesus' own resurrected body was was like. You can look at John 20, verses 19 to 20. Timothy George says this about the resurrected body. The resurrection of the body declares that God will make good and bring to perfection the human project he began in the Garden of Eden. So there'll be restoration, resurrected bodies, but then secondly, we will experience a resurrected earth. Romans 8, verses 20 to 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in what? Hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What again does this mean? Well, imagine a world where the decay and brokenness of our world is forever removed and completely gone. Imagine a world void of natural disasters and weather events where the greens and blues are greener and more blue and crisp than you and I could ever imagine. 
Look at what it actually says in the text. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What an incredible picture. This new heaven and earth is compared to the beauty and preparation of a bride on her wedding day being prepared for her groom. And it is physical, a physical earth, a physical reality. Herman Babink writes this, According to Scripture, the present world will neither continue forever, nor will it be destroyed and replaced by a totally new one. Instead, it will be cleansed of sin and recreated, reborn, renewed, made whole. While the kingdom of God is first planted spiritually in human hearts, the future blessedness is not to be spiritualized. Biblical hope, rooted in incarnation and resurrection, is creational, this-worldly, visible, physical, bodily hope. The rebirth of human beings is completed in the glorious rebirth of all creation, the new Jerusalem whose architect and builder is God himself. Ten years ago, uh, in collaboration and partnership with planting what was then Church of the Ward, Andre and I uh, sold our house. We lived on the east end of Guelph, and we moved into St. Patrick's Ward. And we have a picture here of of the home uh, that we bought. This is our home, and uh, we, we bought it, and it is at the time 140 years old. It's now 150 years old. And we imagined uh, and knew that underneath of this white siding was brick. The home is originally a double-bricked home. And so we bought this house, and over time, we worked away, chipped away at things. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we met a heritage mason who moved into our neighborhood. And we'd been looking for somebody who had an expertise. And it was a bit of a, a fear to say, what will the house look like if we took off, if we took off the siding? And then what are we going to do about it when we take it off? Because it could be in pretty bad repair. And so we had the mason come over. We removed a couple of pieces. And he said, oh, well, based upon these couple of pieces coming off, you know, it doesn't look too bad. But of course, it's a couple of pieces, not the entire home. But we decided we're going to do it. We've always wanted to do it. Let's take off the siding and let's see what's underneath. And so over a, a couple weekends, we did that. And so I have a picture here of uh, what it looked like when we initially took off all of the, the siding. There was strapping, wood strapping that the siding was connected to. And you can kind of see from this, it uh, was in pretty rough shape um, when we first did that, but not as bad as we thought it was going to be. We then had our mason start and begin with us, and he did the work of removing bricks. There was cracks in different places. I have a picture here now of on the left side is the front corner of the house, and you can see how bad the brick was, and actually through that wall, you know, if you wanted at that time, you could have just taken a hammer and come right through into the house. <laughs> it was so bad. And then on the right side, you can see by working with this heritage mason, he was able, as best he can, to get new brick that he was trying to match the brick from 150 years ago that was made in a completely different way. And so he rebuilt here. I have another picture here of uh, another, you can see this is at that point our, our front door. There was a big crack that was going up from the front door right up to the sill of that window. And so all that brick had to be removed when we took the door out. And you can see here on the right, when the mason got to work, this architect, this builder, putting it back together, uh, desiring. He would actually take bricks from other parts of the house, original brick, take them out of the place that they were, and then put it in place 
on the front of the house to try to honor the original look of the home. And then finally, we have a picture here uh, for you to see of the home years ago when it was uh, the siding before the siding first went on and then now what our home looks like. Now, I don't show this in any way to go, hey, look at our house, all these sorts of things. But in a small way, what I believe this restoration mimics is a bit of what we will all experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Only better because the colors will be far better and the material will never decay and the material will never break down. Amazing. Let's go on. What's the second joy of heaven according to Revelation 21? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What is this second joy? Absolute presence. Imagine the presence of God no longer being ambiguous or questionable. He will be with you and you will be fully with him. In Eden, in Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God came down to earth, the home of mankind, whenever he wished. On the new earth, God and mankind will be able to come to each other whenever they wish. We will not have to leave home to visit God, nor will God leave home to visit us. God and mankind will live together forever in the same home, the new earth. Scripture declares this, Leviticus 26, 11 to 12, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Ezekiel 37, verse 27, my dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And where God is, there is joy. Matthew 25, verse 23, Jesus says this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Randy Alcorn, making a comment about this verse in particular, writes, The idea of entering into the master's joy is a telling picture of heaven. It's not simply that being with the master produces joy in us, though certainly it will. Rather, it's that our master himself is joyful. He takes joy in himself, in his children, and in his creation. His joy is contagious. And once we're liberated from the sin that blocks us from God's joy and our own, we'll enter into his joy. Joy will be the very air that we breathe. The Lord is inexhaustible, therefore his joy is inexhaustible. Jonathan Edwards, in a 1733 sermon, said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. 
This is the second joy of heaven. Well, what is the third joy of heaven? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is verse 4. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Certainly one aspect of this is absolute relational joy. As you can imagine, this is a natural byproduct of being with God, God's manifest and complete presence, no more pain, no more tears, no more loneliness. But imagine a world where the breakdown of family relationships is no longer a reality. Imagine a world where there's no longer any sexual abuse. Imagine a world where people are not out for themselves, void of exploitation and objectification. Imagine a world where we are reunited with the ones we love and there are absolutely no bad vibes. Christmas is coming. And as much as many of us look forward to some aspects of Christmas, others of us struggle with it. And then what it also means is, oh, they have to come over. That will not be the case in the new heavens and the new earth with those who have trusted Christ. Randy Alcorn in heaven actually explores the topic of sex in heaven. Will there be sex? In his mind, in his exploration, there won't be. For as Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 30, from the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so marriage then, as we know it, will not continue because of the one marriage of Christ and his church. And in this relationship, this joy, this such joy and satisfaction from Christ will trump any of the highs of sexual pleasure. And the sexual pleasure will actually pale in comparison to the experience of being in heaven with Christ. If anything, then, what Alcorn suggests is that sex, then, is simply a signpost pointing us forward to true pleasure. As I heard Sam Alberry say once, he said, while marriage gives us a picture of the gospel in life now of Christ and the church, singleness ultimately shows us the gospel's sufficiency. Now, this point does not eliminate the fact that you and I will live in relationship in heaven, likely with those that we spent time with on earth, husband, wives, children, friends, family. But it only is to highlight that those relationships will be uniquely different and then so much better. In helping us contextualize some of these emotions that might be rising in us as we think about, well, what about some of these joys that we experience here? J.I. Packer says this, hearts on earth may say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. But invariably it does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. There is no better news than this. What's the fourth joy of heaven and the final one that we're going to consider today? The next verse. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The fourth joy, absolute provision. Imagine a world where everything that you truly need is available to you. 
Imagine a world where you do not need to scrounge or to pinch pennies to get the best produce for yourself and for your family. It will be simply available to you at your fingertips. To those who are thirsty, they're the needy. What this text tells us is that there is an endless stream. Jesus actually alludes and says something to this similar in John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now in this text, Jesus is speaking about himself, but he's also speaking about the coming Holy Spirit who through his life, death, and resurrection would then be given to his people. Now, this last point presents a challenge to you and to me, and it's an invitation as well. The challenge is the gospel. The invitation is also the gospel because it's the thirsty ones that will be the ones that experience this restoration, presence, and satisfaction that I have spoken about. If you are not thirsty, if you do not recognize your spiritual need, you will not enjoy nor will you want heaven Think about what I've talked about this morning as far as the joys of heaven. You know, people will think, oh, you know, well, I don't want hell, so I'll definitely want heaven. Will someone who doesn't want hell really want what heaven is? The absolute perfect presence of God. Likely not. For him to be joy, for him to be satisfaction, will they want that? Matthew 5, 3 to 6, Jesus says this. We studied the Beatitudes a few years ago during COVID. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who, what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for God? Do you hunger and thirst for what heaven is and what we are promised that it will be? But what does this mean for us? Well, for those of us who want Jesus and want heaven with him forever, his second coming gives us hope, it gives us peace, it gives us love, and it gives us joy as we look forward, brothers and sisters, to absolute restoration, presence, and satisfaction. But for those of us who do not know Jesus, Jesus, this is an opportunity to enter into relationship with him, to express your need, and then to receive his love. And if you are someone who has never expressed that need, recognized that need, I would invite you to do that even this morning. To say, God, I want to trust you. I want to take a step of faith. I'm listening to these words, make sense of them in my mind. And even if they don't fully make sense, may I step forward in faith. Might I turn to you when I hunger and thirst for you, not for more of myself or whatever other faith position that you have. But I want you instead because this joy, this hope of heaven sounds far greater than anything I've ever imagined or experienced on earth. And if that's what you're hearing, that's absolutely true. This will be far better than we could ever imagine or experience. 
C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Last Battle, brilliant, brilliant section. But he describes a little bit of this new heaven and this new earth reality. And so I would invite you as we close simply to hear these, this part of the narration from this book. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blues, the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence, while, why, they're exactly like, look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head and there's the pass into Archenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're, they're different. They have more colors on them and they look further away than I remembered. And they're, they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I have seen it all. Etinsmir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Caraparavel, still shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? For Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed, and then the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said that you could never go back into Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia that had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something else in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all of the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as a waking life is from a dream. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the home that you are preparing for us. We thank you that in this life, in the here and now, we can experience, oh, but a shadow of what is to come. Jesus, I thank you that we will have eternity together. Jesus, would you open our eyes this morning to the hope of heaven? God, and if there is anyone here who's never put their trust in you and does not have this assurance of this 
heaven and cannot have this hope, would they turn to you today? And for those of us, Jesus, that have become wooed and attracted by the things of this world that are not of your kingdom, but are of the kingdom of darkness, God, would you put such a bitter taste in our mouth towards these things? And would we instead become thirsty for righteousness? Would we hunger and thirst for it, Lord Jesus? And as we hunger and thirst, Lord, for your righteousness, God, would we become people that can't help but tell others about where we, where our hunger is satisfied. And it's solely in you. And so we want to trust you. Help us to trust you. Amen.